What is the power of simplicity to navigate cultural differences? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Daniel Trielli in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Bochkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Facundo Suenzo, a doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, We invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx and Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Estas son nuestras historias. Esas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am delighted to have with me Daniel Trielli, who's an assistant professor at Loyola University, Chicago. Daniel got his bachelor's degree in journalism at Universidade Metodista de Sao Paulo, then a master's of journalism at the University of Maryland in College Park, and a PhD in Media Technology and Society at Northwestern University. He is the author of several papers, conference uh, proceedings, and other publications. And you know, before he transitioned to academia, he had a very uh, important career in journalism. Um, he worked at the Associated Press, Ao Estado de Sao Paulo, e a Diario do Grande ABC, the last two in Brazil. Daniel is an expert in computational journalism, and we are thrilled to have him with us. So, Daniel, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here today. It's a very important place for me. It is, it is our pleasure. So tell us, how did it all begin? How was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? Well, the start of the journey uh, was really unexpected. And in fact, um, it was never my dream to become a professor or even to have a PhD or anything like that. In fact, um, when I was graduating from college in journalism in Brazil, the, the, the Universidade Metodista, in 2005, I graduated and I said to myself, that's it. I'm never going to set foot at a university again. I am done with this. I'm just going to go to industry. I'm going to work as a journalist. And that's going to be my life. I will never have to think about uh, educational institutions or papers or uh, even research methodologies, which was the thing that really threw me off academia back then. Um, and then I went to work um, for news organizations. And it was a moment of transition for the world. Um, in 2005, all the way through 2015. Um, a lot has changed in journalism in those years, including the emergence of these platforms. You know, the emergence of what we used to call Web 2.0, uh, 
and then you know these these big tech companies that started uh, getting increasingly more control about uh, how people really receive any media, but particularly news media. But still, I worked as a journalist for those years as first a reporter and an editor. But increasingly, I had questions, both methodological questions in journalism about how to do my work better, but also bigger questions about where journalism is going and what would future journalists need uh, in order to keep journalism alive and healthy. Um, those questions led me to consider a master's degree and I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship from a private institution in Brazil uh, that would select um, relatively young journalists in Brazil and pay for them to get their masters from foreign universities, particularly in the United States, so that they could uh, continue serving journalism, right? By learning new things that, that would keep journalism healthy. And I did that and I had the opportunity you know, to go to the University of Maryland and do my master's degree there. And the idea there was to focus on data and computational journalism, learn how to do that, uh, which was something that I did very informally and very self-taught. Um, I wanted to have an actual training in how to do this, because then I could enact some positive changes in journalism. I would go back to industry and apply everything that I would learn. Um, but in the middle of that process, uh, I had the opportunity to be a teaching assistant and a research assistant at the university as part of their package that they offered me. And I, when I accepted this, I said, sure, okay, let's do it. Uh, why not? Um, but while I was doing it, I fell in love with it. I fell in love with research and I fell in love with teaching. Uh, the research was about uh, search engines and their impact in political information in the United States, which was a theme that I was interested in. And the teaching was teaching uh, very introductory data journalism practices to our undergrad students at the University of Maryland. So I fell in love with both these things and I wanted to continue doing them. Um, I wanted also to continue working with or in industry, but those things really pulled me towards changing uh, my career. And my advisor then said, well, why don't you do a PhD? I said, okay, I'll do that. And that will give me at least five more years to continue having some experience teaching and, and research. And maybe after these, these five years, um, I'll, I can get a job in industry or I can just keep going. And I just kept going. Um, I started the PhD at the University of Maryland. Then this advisor who is Nicholas Diakopoulos moved to, to Northwestern and he invited me to join him uh, at Northwestern. I went along and I had an even better experience there with research and teaching. I said, well, that's, this is the thing that I want to do. So I fell in love with it and just decided to do it based on luck, I would say, uh, based on randomness in life and randomness in choosing to go to the University of Maryland and not other institutions for my master's, which I came very close to doing. Um, so I just realized that I, that I liked doing this and that I liked learning how to do this better. And closing that loop, it also allowed me to ask big questions about journalism that I already, already had working as a journalist. And it also helped me 
continue in this goal of enriching journalism, uh, but this way through training the next generations of journalists. So that was always my goal. That's a fascinating trajectory. And you clearly are passionate about the worlds of journalism and mm -hmm. academia. Mm -hmm. Particular the academia who studies or which studies journalism. Mm -hmm. These two worlds in the US in particular do not often intersect, overlap a lot, and in dialogue, in fluid dialogue. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that's the case? I think journalists um, are annoying. And and, and and scholars are annoying in a different non-compatible ways. Uh, I think it's, uh, journalism is very protective of itself and very proud of the journalism roots, um, particularly that started to stem in the early, early 20th century throughout the world, I think in the United States, but also in Brazil, this happens, which is this idea that there is a differentiation between the real world and the academic world. Um, and it might be the case, particularly in, the, in, in Brazil, that the academic world is a very elite oriented world and kind of far away from the real world in the streets. And I think journalists are a little hesitant to participate in that. Uh, there is a lot of debate on whether or not a journalism degree is necessary to do journalism in Brazil. Um, there's back and forth of it. And part of the, of, of the push to not require it is exactly because um, academia, even in the undergraduate levels, uh, might be too distant from the realities of the Brazilian people. And here I'm talking about Brazil. But I think in general, both sides have their unique perspectives of reality and they might think that, that those perspectives of reality might be incompatible, I think. I think there's also a lot of, there's a lack of knowledge about the other side, about how the other side should work. And I say that thinking about my own uh, uh, trajectory, right? I wasn't interested in academia when I graduated uh, from college because I thought that I knew everything that I could know about journalism within the walls of academia. And that if I were to learn more about journalism, I would have to learn by doing it. Um, but in fact, what I've learned in my trajectory in academia is that that trajectory is very much, I mean, there are pressures to it, but it's very much self-directed. Um, you have a degree of freedom of what to do and how to do it that for me was unexpected coming from my understanding of academia back then, right? Of course, uh, you know, I have to find advisors that are interested in the work and you have to learn the methods of how to do that work and you have to rest yourself on the giants, uh, you know, staying in the shoulder of giants that came before you in previous literature. Uh, and sometimes these giants, giants are in your own department, uh, so you have to deal with that. Um, but you're very much free to ask questions that you want to ask in a way that often in journalism, you are not, surprisingly, um, including big questions 
um, about our role in society in favor of climate. So I think there is a mutual suspicion from both sides. Um, and, it, and I think it stems from an understanding of how we can understand truth. It's different methods and practices that kind of don't match with each other. And you have done research, teaching and outreach as well, mm -hmm. try to bridge between the two communities, connect them. Mm -hmm. What are some lessons learned um, in that journey that you can pass along to others? Mm -hmm. I think my I think a lesson that I've learned and a lesson that I now very it's almost like a it's a it's a philosophical cornerstone for me is um, when you're clear and simplify things you can bring everyone with you no matter who they are so I try to do all the work that I do as simple and clear as possible so that everyone can understand what I'm talking about, right? And I even do that uh, with the methodologies of the studies that I do, right? I usually start with a conceptual understanding of what I want to measure or what I want to study. And I think about, you know, if it's more of a, uh, uh, you know, a, 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 a statistical measurement, I think about all the statistical uh, possibilities to show that. And then the next step is, okay, what's the most simple statistical test? What is the most easily explainable statistical test that I can do here, right? Because I am convinced that a lot of people outside academia do not know what a regression is, right? Um, and sure, there are ways that I have to use things like regressions, but that is kind of like the threshold that I would like to get, that do not go beyond that in terms of complexity of understanding. And I think the lesson that I learned is that, is that if you have, the, the simpler you are in the outcome of your work, and simple doesn't mean easy, and simple doesn't mean obvious, uh, although, there is, you know, there is a, a value in stating obvious things, I think, that is, are, are often, often disregarded. But as simple as things are, and the better they are, because everyone can join in that conversation. So my goal is always to have clarity in everything that I say and do, so that you know, people in academia can understand it, but also my aunts can understand it. And it's an exercise and it's very hard. It's very hard to, to, to reach simple language and even simple methods, right? But I think it's an essential part of scholarship is communicating the, the, the output of that scholarship. So I, that's what I strive for. That's fascinating because you are describing simplicity as a key towards navigating two cultures, mm -hmm. right? 
Yeah, exactly. It's a good, it's a good baseline, right? It's as if, you know, <clears throat> it's, it's as if like I, maybe I speak German and you speak, speak French, right? What is the baseline between that? Well, there are common words that we can use to kind of understand each other. I mean, me and you, I speak Portuguese, you speak Spanish. I mean, we could have a conversation in both of us with our native languages, right? Uh, but we would have to choose our words carefully. Right? I, I see the world like that as well. And I think that also stems from my background as a journalist. And in fact, when I was, I'm sorry, when I was an, in fact, when I was an intern at Diário do Grande ABC, my first internship was at the children's section of the newspaper, in which we had to report the news for children. And one of the sections, one of the hardest sections to, to write in that section was when children would ask questions to us. So I was there and while I was there, there was the Hurricane, Hurricane Katrina in the United States. So one of the questions that we got from one of our child readers was, what's a hurricane? And our audience was, you know, eight to 10 years old. So how do you explain what is a hurricane and what happened to Katrina to an eight-year-old? Eight and it was the hardest job that I, always, that I had because I had an excellent editor that would not budge in some requirements for simplicity of language. And that's what kind of directed me. And then I became a reporter for economy that I had to talk about fuel prices and the pressures of fuel prices. So I always had that lesson of, okay, I'm gonna keep it simple because again, my reader is not, the reader for the local news is just a regular person. It's not some business person or you know corporate whatever, right? Um, so that's what has always been kind of driving me towards that, that, that idea that everyone is entitled to read everything that I write. Excellent. Now, as I know from knowing your trajectory, but as you have yourself shared, um, English is not your native language. Mm -hmm. You come from Brazil, which is mm -hmm. a different part of the continent. Mm -hmm. um, with a very different history in many ways than the U.S. and mm -hmm. many different cultures. So you have the habit not only of translating across academia, um, you know, journalism as a practice, mm -hmm. you have had to migrate and to translate mm -hmm. culturally and linguistically between the two countries. What was the experience of doing graduate school in mm -hmm. a country different than yours? Mm -hmm. How has the transition been towards teaching mm -hmm. um, first as a TA and now as a faculty member in a country that's not yours of origin, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, for the language aspect, it was a challenge based on the previous work that I did as a journalist, right? Um, because in Brazil, as a journalist, if someone would say to me, you know, 2014, when I was working as a journalist in Brazil, well, we have to write a 500 report, 500 word report about something. Well, okay, I can do that in 20 minutes. Right. 
when I got my first assignment at, at the master's degree, you know, first, you know, oh, here's a weekly assignment, a 500 word report about something. Okay, I can do that in 20 minutes. And it took me way longer than that, right? So the mental load to write something and be understood and say stuff and be understood in a different language is much larger. And I was accustomed to a, again, an existence which I could just bang out these things very quickly, right? Uh, so I had to reimagine myself as someone who is now in a different environment that I am. I, even though I was very fluent in the language and I was fortunate enough to always have some sort of ease with English. I always consumed media in English ever since I was a, a, a little boy, you know, playing video games that were very language oriented, um, things like that. So I always had ease with it, which is very fortunate. I, 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 I don't diminish that at all. Um, I thought I didn't really think about whether or not it was going to be easy or not. I just assumed that it was just going to be just as easy to write something in English as it was in Portuguese. Um, and to the point that even sending emails in a different language is exhausting, right? Because you're always considering, is this exclamation point going to be understood as, as people would understand it back home? So the these dimensions of being understood is, is the challenging thing. Um, as to teaching itself, as to going out and, you know, actually doing a lecture or something like that, the challenge there, I think, is more uh, the differences in societies between the United States and, and, and Brazil than anything else, and the expectations that students might have here or there, uh, that I don't really know what the expectations of students in Brazil are because I don't have any experience teaching in Brazil. But I do have the perspective of being a student in Brazil uh, back you know, 20 years ago um, and expecting what I expected from, from my profession. So I think that's the more, more challenging thing. I could say though that sometimes when I'm speaking in English, some switch gets turned that it's almost as if because it's not my native language, the words have no meaning. So I am more free to speak. I don't know if that makes sense to anyone else. Has this make sense? Does this make sense to you? Yes, I, I think the the sound got a little bit distant. Can you yeah. Okay. okay, is that better? Okay. It's perfect, perfect. Yes, no, absolutely makes sense to me. No, no. It's not the language of our traumas, you know what I mean? Right. So you could just say things and they're kind of like meaningless because they're not the words that you, you know, were raised on. So I think sometimes when I'm speaking, it's even easier than Portuguese because I don't have any deep-seated thoughts about each word that's coming out. But writing is completely, it's very hard. Um, I was going to ask you this, but now I, I need to ask you this. 
So we've been talking about your migration from Brazil to the US. Mm -hmm. This is a journey that many scholars do from their mm -hmm. continent. Um, what does Brazil mean to you? How is the process of, and the experience of being away from Brazil? That's very hard. Brazil is my home country. Um, and in fact, um, it's this weird experience, you know, coming to the United States and even having multiple, having gone through multiple places in the United States, first Maryland, now Chicago, and now I'm going to go back to Maryland. Uh, it's almost as if you leave a piece of home everywhere you go, right? Um, and it's not unlike the experience that I had in that regard, at least, uh, moving from my hometown of Santos in the coast of the state of Sao Paulo to the big city of Sao Paulo, right? And I was in Brazil. I, I was born in Santos. I was raised in Santos. And then I moved to Sao Paulo. Um, and, I, and then my parents moved out of Santos. So I rarely went to Santos anymore. And that, you know, it's a very melancholic feeling because it is your home, the foundation of your identity, and you don't get to visit that often anymore. And I feel the way the same thing about Brazil. Um, when I was, you know, a graduate student uh, in the early careers of my graduate student, we didn't have enough money to go every year to Brazil. Now, hopefully we will, right? And then came the pandemic and we didn't, we weren't able to go to Brazil again. So there are always disruptions that prevent us from revisiting our home. And that is very challenging, right? Um, I have friends that I haven't seen in years since I moved here seven years ago. Um, the contact with my family uh, is, you know, much more difficult. My we have a, you know, a daughter now, and she has to be accustomed to seeing her grandparents through Skype, or at least, you know, at the very, at the, at most once a year in person. Right? Um, it's a, it's a lonely experience, right? It's a lonely experience because even though you find new friends and you find new communities, you have to let go of a lot of things. Not let go of people or places but let go with the frequency and the proximity of those people and places. So, but, but Brazil is still my home. I'm still, you know, I, I don't envision uh, abandoning Brazilian citizenship to become a citizen here, even though I might probably be here for a long time. Um, I'm still technically a non-resident alien in this country, a temporary worker on an H-1B visa. And, Maybe that's going to change in a bit, but I don't know. Um, you know, I, I have the experience of, and my wife, you know, we've have had the experience of being temporary residents here for seven years now. Um, I, as an F1 student, and she, at times as an F1 student, but also as an F2 dependent of students, which is a visa classification for, you know, dependents of students, which is, you know, I can complain a lot about my status as a student and the limitations of it. It's nothing compared to what a dependent or a spouse of a student is in this country. She's not allowed to work. Um, there's a lot of limitations uh, to, to her that, to being a dependent of, uh, of a student that are very hard. Even, uh, 
uh, you know, psychologically hard, right? Um, so Brazil is my home, but here is also my home. Maryland is also my home. Chicago is also my home. We're just, we're just going to have to be content with leaving pieces of home um, wherever we go. So it's a very poetic way of finishing um, your, your comment or your answer to my question. So have you, you said you're probably going to be here, meaning the U.S. for mm -hmm. quite some time. Mm -hmm. Have you considered going back to Brazil? Yes, I have. Uh, multiple times. And one of the times was when I ended the master's program at Maryland, we had like a decision to make there of whether or not I would pursue the PhD or go back to Brazil and apply what, I, what I've learned. Uh, unfortunately, back then, going back to Brazil was a very hard decision. It was a very hard, um, wasn't a hard decision, it was a very hard thing to do if we decided to do that. Because economically, politically, socially, um, it was a very hard country to go, come, go back to in you know, 2017, 2018, because it also involved um, a complete lack of prospects in terms of employment, both in industry and academia. Um, I have, I mean, some opportunities have shown up that were more uh, clear and solid. Um, but by then I was in this process of already being here for the PhD. And then when it came time to, to look for employment, and again, the opportunities here were better. The opportunity is not only personal slash financial, but also scholar scholarly opportunities, the opportunity to continue doing things that I like doing, right? Um, and continuing to do work that hopefully is gonna get, um, is gonna result in what I hope is some impact or at least some good conversations about the future of journalism, right? Um, journalism training, I mean, journalism schools in the United States are, suffering and are gonna continue suffering. Uh, I expect that uh, a lot of programs are gonna face difficulties from now on, but in Brazil, that situation is even harder. It's even harder to find places where you can actually teach how to do this thing. So there is gonna be a moment of reconstruction in the future, I hope. But what has always prevented us from going back was the lack of opportunity to continue doing the things that we wanted to continue doing. And then now we have a child who is a dual citizen. And she was born in the United States, but she's the daughter of two Brazilians. So therefore she also has Brazilian citizenship. And I think to a more personal degree, we owe it to her to keep the options open as to where she's gonna be raised and what country belongs to her. I, I, we keep, I mean, she's one year, 10 months and we keep telling her that you belong in these two countries. You belong in whatever you wanna go, but these two countries are your countries. But at the same time, 
we want to give her the opportunity to fully be present in those two countries. So that's what we hope to do. How was the job market for you? You were successful not once, but twice, <laughs> very short period of time. <laughs> um, in a field where there are many more candidates than opportunities. Mm -hmm. So tell us about the experience and tell us about lessons learned that work for you that perhaps might work for others. Right. Well, I also applied for many more jobs than I got interviews for, uh, which is, I think, uh, not unexpected, of course. I had uh, a total of almost 60 uh, applications um, for jobs. And I had some fortunate and some fortune in the way that and the things that I'm interested in that are versatile enough that I can cover a variety of potential jobs. So I wanted a job in journalism, in teaching journalism and researching journalism. But I would be okay if I got a job in wider like communication studies departments or you know maybe political communication department could also work and things like that. So I think by virtue of the things that I that I have studied and the way that I presented that research, I had the opportunity to have a little bit of more choice of, 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 of the jobs that I could apply to and the places I was would be happy to do so. Um, I did apply for places or let's say geographical locations that would be socially and culturally difficult for me to attend. And I am aware of that, like universities that are in places in the United States that are potentially re less receptive to the kind of um, people we are in lives and philosophies that we have, right? Um, I had jobs that fell through for a variety of reasons, right? Uh, I was selected to a bunch of first round interviews, Zoom interviews that didn't go anywhere. I was selected to a couple of campus visits that could have gone other place too, that could have gone on, but didn't. Um, there was a job that was a good candidate for, at least from their, they said that, that it was a job for assistant professor at a university. Um, and they said to me, after the first round of interviews, they said, you're a great candidate, but we got more funding and we're gonna hire an associate professor now. We're not gonna hire an assistant professor now. So you're now, so I, that was, I thought to myself, well, I thought I already heard about jobs that fell through because funding collapsed. I never heard of a job falling through because the funding went up, but anyway. Um, so I was fortunate to be well positioned uh, in uh, in a field that you know it, it is hard to get a job at, but 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 at least there's a variety of different types of institutions, um, and and yeah, I think the lesson that I learned is that knowing who you are and what you have to offer is the main thing, because then when you present yourself to a job, you can either say, I know I'm good for that job because 
out of the potential things that you're looking for in this job. And also be aware of people don't always know what they're looking for, right? You can pull them to your direction saying, look, I know in the scope of things that you are interested in, I am like 60% of what you want in terms of research areas and things like that. Um, you can either make the case of this is the 60% that matters, therefore you should go with me. Or you can make the case of, okay, I like it here so much that I'm willing to, to work with you on the other 40% that you need, right? So knowing who you are is the first best thing that you can do throughout the entire process from the cover letter that you write to the final conversation with the dean at the visiting day. If you have a clear idea of who you are and who you aren't, that goes a long way. Very interesting. Now, how much does the fact to tie the two topics that we've covered, two topics, no, no, they are not the two, but two topics that we've covered so far. How much does the fact that you are a Brazilian scholar mm. as sort of being part of the conversation, Mm -hmm. And how much that aspect of your personal and professional identity you think is highlighted, seen, talked about, appealing, mm -hmm. just, you know, <coughs> um, right. in this process? Because you've done it right. twice, so you must have some sense. <laughs> right. I think there are two perspectives there. There's my perspective as a Brazilian facing this world and the other world and, and this world seeing me as a Brazilian. And then the first part, the, the second thing is this world seeing me as a Brazilian candidate. Um, I, a lot of the jobs that I applied for and was successful, even though if it, I was not ultimately hired, but anyway, successful meaning was called back for an interview, um, did have um, a concern about having a more global perspective on these issues. And this is so, something that is in my research agenda. My research paper, my research so far has focused on the United States, but my plan is to expand that to other countries, particularly Brazil. And I have a variety of reasons why Brazil matters and should matter in research and attention of the world. And I can say, you should care about Brazil. And by the way, I'm Brazilian and I can do this work, right? So a lot of these jobs, a lot of these places wanted that global perspective. And then it was just about me making the case that Brazil was a good place to start, at least start to have that global perspective. Um, and to be frank, sometimes people say that, but they don't really mean it. Like people say that, oh, we want, you know, we want to focus on the global South or whatever, right? But they might, you know, toss that away if uh, another good candidate can come in. So you can make the case of, oh, by the way, you're, you're saying that you want this. So here's an opportunity for you to do this. And I'm presenting you right in your face so that you can't really go and say, well, you wanted someone to study Global South, but really we only had these white men from the United States as candidates. So might as well go with them, one of them, right? Now that's one perspective that helps, like knowing that your research is gonna to lead to things by virtue of, your, of who you are is going to, can lead you to things that might be interesting to them. The flip side to that is my perspective as Brazilian in this, facing this world of academia. 
is that I think, and I can say that because I am Brazilians, Brazilian. I think Brazilians have a healthy skepticism towards institutions and organizations and a healthy flexibility in what we can do and what can make us happy. So I do find it jarring a little bit, and maybe this is a Latin American thing, I don't know, but I do find it jarring when I have very good friends, very good colleagues that are American, and they have a very specific idea of what they want to do and what could make them happy. And me, I started this process by saying that I would never set foot in an, ac in an academic institution again. And then I did my master's and I started that master's thinking that I was going to go back to industry. And I didn't go back to industry. And, you know, it, it, one thing led to the other. And I saw myself being happy doing things that I wasn't really expecting. So I think as a Brazilian, seeing this weird world of academia, um, I can see some potentials of being happy and being impactful because I think maybe I'm from Brazil and I, we're accustomed to adapting when the world changes, uh, when society changes all of a sudden. Um, so I, I think that might be it, but again, it might be a stereotype, I don't know. No, it's fascinating. And, you know, Brazil is a very, very big country, 250 million, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I, I'm going by memory, I have not checked the data. Um, it is the most important and populous country in Latin America, mm -hmm. a country which during the 20th century had a very, very deliberate uh, national policy of strengthening, despite what you're describing relative to other Latin American nations, at least I mean, mm -hmm. to many nations in what used to be called the third world or developing mm -hmm. world, et cetera. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of, you know, deliberate policy of industrialization, of mm -hmm. strong institutions, um, Terrific universities. Mm -hmm. um, what do you see? How do you see the world of communication research in Brazil? And how do you see it interfacing with the more sort of global communication mm -hmm. research? <clears throat> That's a great question. Um, as I said previously, I mean, uh, Universities in Brazil, and I think this is not something that is unique to Brazil, but has always, universities in Brazil has, have always been the place for the elites, right? As a middle class, upper middle class, at least socially upper middle class person in Brazil, not financially because we, we were kind of broke, uh, but as, a, as an upper middle class person in Brazil, uh, I always had the expectation that I was going to go to college which wasn't the fact for a lot of people in my country. Um, but academia is, has been in the past a very insular place in Brazil. And now I think it's unavoidable 
that some real serious conversations about restructuring and opening up that world are taking place in Brazil. And they are. There are discussions of new programs and new, um, new formats of programs that are aiming to uh, be more open to collaboration um, from, with international institutions and institutions from uh, other countries. Um, that's not always easy to do in the greatest colleges, which is the public universities in Brazil, because there is a bureaucratic uh, oversight and bureaucratic uh, structuring of that that doesn't allow for a lot of collaboration, unfortunately. But we are seeing some respected private institutions entering the world of communication uh, studies by creating new departments and new schools. Uh, and they're gonna be very collaborative. And I think they're gonna inspire um, other universities to fall suit. Uh, I always have the hope of some um, wider reform within public universities in Brazil because they are excellent but maybe they can lend themselves some more openness to collaboration. And a lot of it stems from an almost, not almost, a definite deliberate um, reduction of budgets in the last years for public universities. So maybe that's gonna turn around. But within these universities, you see very interesting labs that study the digital world, the intersection between media and the digital world that we should be on the lookout for. And, and I think that's where interesting work and collaboration can come from. So I do think that there is, I mean, I think change is on the way in the meta level, uh, but communication scholars in Brazil are very good and they're very good at finding, uh, at being aware of, of the trends and what people are doing, right? And I think uh, the center, right, is, is gonna be key here. Like the Latinx, the Center for Latinx Digital Media is gonna be a very important component in that as well, in keeping that conversation. Thank you very much. We certainly hope so. So, Daniel, we have covered lots of issues about your own experience, about the world of academia, the world of practice in both countries, um, a lot of positives, but also some nostalgia and um, some concerns. So if you have magical powers, then I could be granted just one wish about how you would like the fields of, you know, research in academia about journalism, news and media, and also the worlds of practice or the relationships between both. Mm -hmm. What would you wish for? If I had magical powers, I would wish for journalism scholarship and communication scholarships and scholarship and the journalism industry to be more collaborative and open to each other and understand each other more. Um, to have more uh, partnerships, both in research internships and, you know, um, 
having reporters embed themselves in academia and the scholars embed themselves in newspapers and news media in general throughout the world. Now, this is a trend that is happening in the United States. Uh, we even have PhDs being hired by news organizations in the United States, which is something, you know, up until recently unheard of. But I would like to see that throughout the world, um, particularly because one of the problems is that we can't focus our understanding of these processes only in the United States. The United States is a great country, I love it. Very rich country and richness of life, not only of financial resources. Um, but I would like to see more collaboration and openness from both sides, both industry and academia, to, again, to get to the truth, to find the truth. Um, and understand each other a little bit more. All right, my friend, that is a terrific note on which to end this conversation. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and experiences with us. Thank you to our audience for staying with us through the end. And I invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thanks again, Daniel. That was terrific. Thank you so much. This is my complete pleasure. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I'm Pablo Wojcicki, the host, and I'm joined by executive producer Facundo Swenson.